This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Uh, John 19, John 19. We, we are in a section of scripture that is... Uh, it's pretty sober in its nature, for we are at the trial of Jesus, and uh, we are at the place just before his crucifixion, uh, looking at that today. Uh, last week, we looked at Jesus following his arrest as he stood before Annas, uh, one of the high priests, and as he stood before Pilate. Pilate uh, was a Roman governor, so the, the people of Israel, they are under the rule of Rome, and so there's a local regional guy. He has a headquarters right across from the temple of Israel. And uh, so he is there providing oversight as a representative of the, of the government. And um, so the, the Jews are the ones who, the high priest and the officers are the ones who arrest Jesus. And uh, they try him in their own way and find him guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be God. But they don't have the power to crucify him, and they want him crucified. So they take him to Pilate, who is the Roman ruler. And we looked at that last week of how Pilate interviews Jesus and can't really find anything wrong with him, can't find him guilty of anything. So Pilate has this idea, well, you know, maybe I could get out of this by you know, offering Jesus a, a, a free pass. So he says, you know, every year at the Passover, I let a prisoner go. So I'm happy to let Jesus go. And they say, no, crucify him. We want Barabbas to go free. Barabbas, who is a robber and a murderer and a, a rebel against the government. So they want him to go free as instead of Jesus. That's where we finished last week. And we begin today in verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out 
and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. God, we read this sober passage of Scripture, and we just pray that uh, you would open our eyes to see what it is you were doing in this account, Lord. Show us your character. Show us your nature. Lord, we pray that you would just open our eyes, that we might see you in a new way. And we pray that you would, in revealing yourself to us, that you would change us. Lord, we don't want to just have an academic history lesson about this passage, but we want to meet you. We want to encounter you. We ask you, Spirit of God, to speak to us and to change us today as we look at your word. Lord, form us and conform us more into the image of Jesus. Thank you for what you've done for us. We pray the result of this would be overwhelming gratitude in our hearts to you. Lord, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit and empower me to communicate with clarity um, the truth that is here to the folks gathered. We need you, and we ask you to speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's been a back and forth with Pilate and the religious leaders prior to this, and uh, he is gaining no ground with the religious leaders. They are holding their ground. They want him crucified. He doesn't understand why. He doesn't see a reason for this. Uh, And so what he does is, verse 1, he takes Jesus and has him flogged. He flogs Jesus. A flogging is uh, also called a scourging. It is a beating. It is a whipping. Uh, They had a certain whip that they would use for this that um, would have strands and... and, um, you know, attached to it would be pieces of bone or metal or something like this so that it could be used to to strike a criminal, a victim, and to rip the skin uh, from the person. They had three levels of flogging. One was kind of a uh, a lighter, you could say. I mean, none of it would be light, but a lighter uh, form of flogging, which was for everyday crimes, for the common criminal. Uh, that was a punishment that was getting, given to them. Uh, they had a more severe kind that was used for uh, much more serious crimes to make a far uh, more impacting statement of punishment to a criminal. And then they had the most severe kind, which was connected with crucifixion. It was a severe flogging, a scourging that was given to one who was going to die by crucifixion. And oftentimes that beating was so severe uh, that the criminal would die prior to even being crucified just by loss of blood and trauma, uh, sometimes would die before they even got to the crucifixion. They don't tell us, uh, that John doesn't tell us here which Jesus receives. Um, some surmise by looking at all the gospel counts and putting them together that he's flogged twice, that this may in case be a lighter flogging and that he receives the most severe flogging after crucifixion is pronounced upon him, which is certainly a likely approach here. Um, but at whatever case, he is beaten um, And Pilate is probably doing this to show them that he is taking the charge seriously and that he is punishing this Jesus. He's handed over to the soldiers who do this. And if you'll notice, the soldiers do much more than just beat him. Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. 
and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. What they're doing here is a mock sort of coronation of Jesus. They're treating him like a king, but they're doing it in a mocking sort of a manner. So the first thing they do is they form a crown for this supposed king. Um, it's probably not thorn, a crown of thorns that's sort of light and wispy and sort of just sits on his head like a laurel wreath. Sometimes you see that in our pious drawings. Um, likely it's much more severe than that. A number of commentators I read surmise that they may have used uh, thorns, long thorns, more like spikes out of a date palm, which would have been a, pro- uh, a prominent plant, prominent tree there. So those kind of spikes could be up to 12 inches in length. And somehow they weave these together and they put it on his head, likely pressing into his head. They're not just mocking him, but they are, they're going for pain as well. So they probably press that upon his scalp. Um, which would have caused from the head profuse bleeding and swelling as well. They find a purple robe of some sort. I mean, maybe this is just a purple sheet that they drape around him. And now that he's wearing a crown and he has the, the royal color of purple, the robe upon him, they, they treat him in a, in a mocking fashion as a king. And they say, hail, verse 3, hail, king of the Jews. This is how they would have... Uh, related to Caesar. And they are making fun of him and mocking him because they hate him. The Romans hated the Jews. And now these soldiers have a representative Jew who, they don't know the story, the the accusers say he's the king of the Jews. So they have the supposed king of the Jews in their possession and say they are playing with him, they are tormenting him, they are punishing him with cruelty that is not only physical in nature, but is also mocking in nature, making fun of him. If you're such a great king, look at you. Hail king. So it's all a sarcastic, sort of spiteful, hateful approach to Jesus. He says that they not only said, Hail, King of the Jews, whereas they would have bowed before Caesar and saying, Hail, Caesar. They say, Hail, King of the Jews, but instead of bowing, it says that they struck him with their hands. So they say, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slap him or they punch him. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that they also gave him a scepter like a king would hold, a reed scepter, and they took the reed scepter and they beat him in the head with it and they spat upon him. That's what Matthew tells us. So in this mock coronation, they are pressing a crown of thorns into his head. They are putting a, a, uh, a robe upon him, a sheet, whatever it is. They are beating him with a reed. They are punching and slapping him. And in, in the ultimate sign of disgust and humiliation, they're spitting upon him as well. And so Pilate takes this picture of Jesus, and he comes back out, he brings him out in front of the people. He says in verse 4, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. I see nothing wrong with this guy, but we have abused him, we have beaten him, we've made fun of him. They bring him out, actually, verse 5, he comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe in front of all the religious leaders and the mob. He comes out in front of them, and Pilate says to them, Behold the man. Look at him. He's innocent, but I've tortured him. I've punished him. In essence, we've done something about your claim. 
But when the chief priests, verse 6, and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. They are not satisfied with a beating. They are not satisfied with a mocking. They are not satisfied with uh, this kind of treatment. They are not satisfied until he is killed and that until he is killed in the, in a way that would produce the most suffering, crucifixion, and until he's killed in a way that would demonstrate him as one cursed by God. We talked about that last week. How the Hebrews taught that someone who is hung or hung from a tree is cursed by God. So they want him crucified by the Romans so that everyone could look and see He's not who he said he was. He's cursed by God. And their hope is that his followership will disband. He will lose his followers and he will die in indignity. Uh, An infamous sort of character who proclaimed himself God and, and got what was coming to him. That's what they hope. And so that's what they are crying for. Now, Pilate is saying, I don't see anything wrong with him. And they are then beginning to explain what they see wrong with him in verse 7. They say, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. He made himself the son of God. We have a law that if someone claims to be God, claiming to be the son of God, is claiming to be God. If someone claims to be God, that they are to be killed. Now, they don't tell us what law that is, but it could be Leviticus 24, verse 16, which says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. I mean, this is an act of blasphemy, someone claiming to be God. If you're not, he is. It's not really an act of blasphemy because he is God. But if you claim to and not, this is an act of blaspheming the name of God. And so they say we have this law that, that he should be killed because of this. He's claimed to be a son of God. Look at verse 8. When Pilate heard these statements, he was even more afraid. Pilate is scared to death about all of this. Why why is he afraid? Well, we have to translate our thinking into the worldview of their day, into likely what would be Pilate's worldview and why this would be so scary. They're saying that he's claimed to be a son of God, and so we want him killed. So first of all, he's likely fearful, maybe if he has any conscience at all. He's likely fearful of putting an innocent man to death. Three times he's going to come and say, I find nothing wrong with him, and they keep pressing. So that's a concern. But secondly, think about in our culture, if someone appeared before a judge and claimed to be God, um, a judge would likely say, this person, you know, we shouldn't be dealing with him in the criminal system. He needs psychiatric care. This person is crazy. That's what we would say uh, someone in our justice system would view someone claiming to be God as mentally imbalanced or something like that. Not so in Pilate's day. The Romans were a people that believed the universe was governed by a whole bunch of gods, a pantheon of gods. They believed in, in multiple gods over various um, uh, that, that reigned over various uh, you know, realms of authority. And so a god could take on human form at some times. And so for all he knows, this really is a god. I mean, in his worldview, this could be one of many gods who has taken a human form and has shown, shown up. That's why in verse 9, the question he asked when it says that he's made himself the son of God, Pilate is afraid of this, verse 8. That's why in verse 9, he goes right back in. And what does he ask Jesus? Where are you from? He wants to know, are you from the heavens? Are you a spiritual being that's taken, you know, become human? Because he's, 
He's afraid to, to act against one of the gods. And so he is afraid. The whole thing is getting scary. And so he says, Jesus, you know, where are you from? And it says, Jesus does not answer him. Jesus isn't explaining himself. He's not defending himself. He's just listening. And Pilate is frustrated. He says, don't you know, I have the power to release you, verse 10, or to crucify you. What do you mean not talking to me? I'm trying to ask where you're from. How how dare you not answer me? Don't you know, I can let you go free, or I can crucify you and subject you to the most uh, excruciating uh, treatment humanly possible. So why aren't you speaking to me? To which Jesus says, you uh, would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So God has given you authority, and God the Father is overseeing all this. Now, I've been turned over to you, and those who turn me over are guilty for their sin, he says. But, but God is the one who is over all. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate wants nothing to do with this. He's innocent in Pilate's view. He may be a spiritual being of some sort, could be from the pantheon of gods come to visit him. He certainly wants no part of that. His wife had had a dream saying uh, about Jesus, saying, don't mess with this guy, basically. So his wife's dream, there's this, what he thinks may be a prophetic dream. There are all these things going into it. So now he is going to seek to release Jesus. He's already been trying to do so. He's offered him up. He, he's wanting nothing to do with this at all. And then the Jews play their trump card because they have one card here that will force Pilate's hand and they play it. They see they're not getting anywhere with him. So what they say in verse 12 is he tried to release from then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king meaning Jesus, opposes Caesar. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat to judge him. See, here's what they're saying. They're saying, we are accusing, you're here ruling over us in Israel, but you're accountable to Caesar. I mean, this is the equivalent of saying, may I speak with the supervisor? He is saying, we're going to your boss. We're going to your boss. And we're going to tell him, that there was a guy who claimed to be a king. As a matter of fact, a few days ago, he came into town. People are waving palm branches, Palm Sunday, we call it. They're waving palm branches. They're singing, they're singing, Hail, King of the Jews. There's this parade of people worshiping him in Jerusalem. So he is gathering a following. He's gathering a following. There's a, a, an uprising brewing, the, the Jewish leaders would say. And we came to our Roman ruler, our governor of the area, Pilate, and we said, there's a guy who's going to lead a rebellion against Rome. He says he's a king. They're all saying he's a king. They're treating him as a king. And we told Pilate, and Pilate said, let him go. You are no friend of the king. You are no friend of your boss if you don't kill someone who is challenges the Caesar's authority. That's what they say. And so Pilate is now caught. History tells us that Pilate's mentor uh, had been killed, had been executed by Rome just a couple years before this. So Pilate knows that Rome is not afraid of executing one of their own, that, that they're not afraid of getting rid of 
their own rulers. It would be nothing for Caesar to say, this guy is derelict in his duties, he's fired, he's imprisoned, he's killed, whatever. But they would, they would sweep away Pilate in a moment if he's not protecting Caesar, which is his ultimate responsibility in governing the people of Israel here in Jerusalem. And so with that threat, they have him. And he, in another gospel, washes his hands of the matter and says, you know, the blood's not on my hands. And he gives in to their bluff, their threat, their extortion, and sits in the judgment seat to judge Jesus. You know, following that, he says to them, verse uh, 14, Behold your king, they cry out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And verse 15, The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest, these are the leaders of God's covenant people, Israel. And the covenant people of Israel, represented by their leaders, the chief priests, are now breaking covenant with God. And they are saying, we have one king and it is Caesar. When the confession of the Bible is, we have one king and he is Yahweh, he is God Almighty, he is our king. And there may be rulers that we are subject to here, but our ultimate ruler is God. They're not crying out, Yahweh is our God. They're not crying out, you know, God is our king. They're saying, here is God the king, King Jesus, kill him. Our God is Caesar, our king is Caesar, rather. And so here is a dark moment. It shows the darkness of the heart of the people of God. It shows how far that they have strayed from God, that they would take God in the flesh and say, kill him. And that they would do so with this verbal confession, we have no king but Caesar. And so Pilate hands him over to be killed. Verse, that's what it says, verse 16. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate gives up and lets him be crucified. Now, how do we think about a passage like this? This is a sober passage. I talked to somebody after the first service who gave me some input on the message saying, that was a sober message because that was a sober passage. I mean, I don't have like a lot of jokes and stories. I don't I think it'd be inappropriate, you know, in this passage. How do we take a narrative like this, a sober narrative, a historical narrative, and apply it to our lives? What does this speak to us that we right now can meet God through this and then walk out of here with something in our lives, something about God affecting our lives as we've read this? How do we apply it is, I guess, what I'm asking. Well, I think the way to understand this narrative from application, first of all, we understand that Jesus is doing this as the Son of God sent by the Father. Most common designation for Jesus in the Gospel of John is sent, sent by the Father, the one who sent me. I'm doing what he who sent me tells me to do. So he's sent by the Father. That's the primary reason he's doing this, to honor and glorify and obey the Father who's sending him. But the secondary reason he is doing this The secondary reason is, I think two words can help us um, understand this. And the two words are for us. He is doing this for us. We read as believers, we read the life story of Jesus. We read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we read them, we see actual events taking place, but we realize those events are done for us. Jesus is born 
for us. For unto us, right? That's what the scripture said, as the son is given. Jesus is born for us. Jesus lives a perfect life, not merely to prove he's God, though that does it, but he lives a perfect life so that his record of perfection will be credited to us. He obeys to please the Father. He obeys as a testimony that he is God, but he also obeys for us. Jesus is tried. The Apostles' Creed says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffers under Pontius Pilate here for us. He's crucified for us. He's buried for us. He's raised to defeat death and the power of sin for us. And in this account, we see that for us, he is going through this mockery of a trial. Two ideas I want to bring from this mockery of a trial to apply for us to think about. One is that through his suffering, he meets us in our suffering. Through Jesus' suffering, he now meets us in our suffering by his suffering. He suffers for us in a way that also means he suffers with us. He meets us in our suffering because of his suffering. When we read this passage, we need to think about not only the deity of Jesus, that he's God, but we need to think about the humanity of Jesus. I think it's significant in verse 5 that Pilate says, Behold the man. Now that's all Pilate saw him as, as a man. But that is a statement. Pilate is making a statement that we can affirm. Pilate's making a statement theologically that we endorse and we believe. That is, the one who is being beaten, the one who is being spat upon, the one who is being mocked in this kingly coronation, is really a man. He's God, to be sure, but he really is a man as well. It's not like his godness takes over and all of this, he's just—he's not affected by all of this. He really suffers. First Peter says he suffers in the body. But in this situation, he also suffers abuse. Jesus is abused, and he's abused not only physically. We often talk about his physical abuse, and, uh, and that's appropriate, for by his stripes we are healed. We often talk about the fact that he, he, is, he experiences the spiritual suffering as our sins are placed upon him and the judgment of the Father is poured out upon him, this mystery of while he's on the cross, he is absorbing the wrath of God. The New Testament calls that propitiation, if you've seen that word. That means a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God for sin. So Jesus dies as a sacrifice and absorbs the wrath of God in our place. So we talk about that regularly. We sang about that this morning, that he takes the Father's wrath for us. We talk about that suffering. We talk about the physical suffering suffering, but there is another kind of abuse that he's enduring here as a human. It's an emotional abuse. It's a relational abuse. It's the kind of abuse that someone feels when they are uh, hated. Jesus is standing before a crowd of Israel who should be loving him, who should be worshiping him, who should be honoring him, and they are screaming, crucify him. I mean, can you imagine a chant that would be any more spiteful, that would be any more vengeful, that would be any more bitter and angry and hateful than someone calling for your crucifixion? I mean, imagine to have a crowd of people at the top of their lungs yelling for you to experience the most difficult, painful, excruciating death imaginable. People 
desiring you to be cursed, people desiring you to suffer and celebrating your suffering, cheering your suffering, in a mad frenzy, crying out for your suffering, arguing with the Roman ruler because they want you to suffer and die. It's not as if his godness just blocks all that out, and as a human, he's not affected by that. He is experiencing extreme hatred. And consider the soldiers and their treatment of Jesus. Their treatment of Jesus is physically torturous, but it is more than that. It is physically, besides that, it is emotionally torturous. They are intentionally degrading Jesus. They are intentionally humiliating Jesus. They are mocking him. And making fun of him. They are doing things that demonstrate how much they despise him as a Jew and as the representative king of the Jews. So they are beating him for sure. They're taking a staff and whacking him in the head. Uh, They are piercing thorns in his scalp and in his head. They are punching and slapping him. They have flogged him. So they're physically beating him. But they're also laughing, jeering, and they're spitting. Spitting upon someone does not hurt them physically. There's no pain physically in being spat upon, but it is the most uh, reprehensible, vulgar uh, expression of disgust that you can bring. There's hardly any way to, to communicate, I despise you and I'm disgusted by you any more than spitting upon someone. And they repeatedly spit upon him. And that communicates something of a hatred and something of a despising that is an emotional abuse to Jesus. They are trying to humiliate, beat, mock, ridicule, harm in every way possible. With their words, with their fists, with a reed, with thorns, with their spit, with their laughing. Every way possible they want to communicate, we despise you. And the Bible said this is exactly how it would be. Isaiah 53 is a passage that prophesies through Isaiah what will happen to Jesus, the suffering servant. This is what Isaiah 53 verse 3 says. He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't have esteem for him. There was a despising of him. That's what's going on. And that's what's happening in physical and the relational abuse that he receives. Psalm 22 is called a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that Jesus actually quotes on the cross, but it's a messianic psalm that uh, that is written hundreds of years before Jesus, but refers to the suffering servant. And in the first person, this is what it says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. That, that's a picture of Jesus. He's viewed as a worm. They're treating him like a creature, like a worm, not a man with dignity, much less God. They're not treating him in a dignified way. They're treating him um, in a degrading way. Scorned. This is scorn. Despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They are laughing and mocking Jesus. Scriptures teaches us that Jesus suffered And he is able to meet us in our sufferings. And it's one of the reasons I bring up this issue of abuse with Jesus. Because I think it's one that we don't think of very much, yet it is is a way he suffers for us. This is what Hebrews 12 says. 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. That's This is it. He endures hostility. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider how Jesus is utterly rejected and is the recipient of hostility. Consider, think about it. That's what I'm leading us in this morning, a meditation upon the vile hatred that is spewed upon Jesus, that is poured out upon him, that is heaped upon him. Think about the vile hatred emotionally and physically, verbally, uh, that is a, that, it, that is poured upon Jesus. Consider him who endured that hostility so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Why is that? Because Hebrews teaches that we have a high priest, Jesus, who is not separate from us, but who is made like us in every way human, and he sympathizes with us. The Bible teaches Jesus becomes a man so that he sympathizes with us. In our sufferings, Jesus understands suffering because he endured it. If you've been rejected, Jesus understands rejection. If you have been, if you, if you have been abused by someone's anger, Jesus understands the abuse of anger. If someone has violated you in some way out of their own selfishness or their own hatred, Jesus understands that. He has been violated as an innocent one, stripped naked and beaten and then later crucified. He understands this. He has experienced this. And he identifies with us in our suffering. And when we think of God as not the God who is distant and detached from his people, but the God who suffers for his people, it it inspires us so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. We can look at Jesus and see that he suffered for us. We can look at Jesus and say that Jesus ultimately forgave his abusers And we can receive his grace and his power that we as well can forgive those who harm us, who hate us, who persecute us, who ignore us, who reject us. He can give us power, power to love our enemies. He can give us power to sustain us when the memories or the live experience is so discouraging. He can give us power to press on when the fear of being attacked further lies in front of us. Jesus is compassionate, and he helps the weary and the faint-hearted as we consider what he has done for us. And not only that, but Jesus promises us that there is a day coming when there will be no more suffering. He will wipe every tear from our eyes, and we will be with him forever in heaven. Jesus not only suffers for us, Jesus is not only with us in our suffering, but Christ tells us that there's a day when he returns or we die, whichever comes first, and he will hold us with him forever. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more crying, no more more sorrow, no more fear, no more uh, oppression, no more affliction, no more hatred, but we will be with him forever, experiencing his glory and his presence. Jesus suffers because God comes near the suffering and demonstrates it in the most real, tangible way possible. He doesn't distance himself. He becomes man and receives suffering for us and cares for us in our suffering. Secondly, what's happening in this passage is he suffers judgment in our place. 
consider the charges that are brought against Jesus. Um, there's really two sets of charges. There's the Jewish charge, what Israel brings against him, and then ultimately what he's crucified for, the Roman charge, even though Pilate doesn't really buy into it, it's still the charge against him. First of all, the Jewish charge, it's found ultimately in verse 7. We have a law that he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. That's the charge. He should die because he's made himself God. And that's blasphemy because he's not God. He's made himself God and he should die. That's their charge. Now, the truth is that's a false charge because he is God. So to make himself God, to claim to be God, is not wrong. It's not blasphemy. It's truth. He is the truth. He's telling the truth. But they're charging him with the fact that he is assuming a role that's not his. He is assuming the role of God. They are saying he is a man, but he is claiming to be God. He is a man, but he is taking the role of God. He is a man, but he is acting like he is God, so he should die. Listen, that is the very nature of sin. That is sin, claiming to be God. Think about in the garden, the very first sin. The serpent comes to Eve, and what does the serpent tell Eve in Genesis 3? God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's the appeal. The serpent comes to Eve and says, just do what you want. God doesn't want you to do that because you'll become God. You'll become like God. So just do what you want. That's why in Exodus, the first commandment that is given is, you shall have no other gods before me. God is saying, I am exclusively God. And you shall have no other gods before me, including yourself as God. And while none of us bow down to a statue of ourselves, every time we put ourselves forward, every time we act in pride, every time we think or speak with a selfish motive, we are making ourselves God. We are saying, I will do what I want to do. I will act as I want to act. I will set my own rules. I will ignore God and I will make myself God. That is the very heart of sin. So Jesus doesn't do anything wrong in making himself claiming to be God because he is God. The ones who are guilty of placing themselves as God are the ones who are cheering and saying, crucify him. They are the ones that are breaking their own law. For they are the ones putting themselves in the place of God and judging God. It is Pilate who sits on a judgment seat. It actually says he sits on the judgment seat. It's the same phrase that is used to speak of God's judgment later in the scripture. Pilate sits on a judgment seat and judges God. He puts himself over God. And that's what happened in the garden. They put themselves over God, wanting to be God and rule their own lives. And that is the lifestyle of everyone who is not a believer in Christ, is that they by nature, we by nature, live for ourselves. That is the crime. Jesus is being accused of what we have all done and what is the basic heart of sin, wanting to be God and acting like God. That's the Jewish charge against him. He is innocent, but he is taking our place and receiving our charge. Consider the Roman charge against him. The Roman charge is there is a king and you are not him and you are breaking his rules by asserting yourself as a king. So the rules of the kingdom are anyone who threatens the king is killed. Anyone who threatens the rule of the king, who is seditious in nature, 
will be executed, and you are acting, you are saying things you are forbidden to say. Now, Pilate didn't agree, but that's the charge. You'd be saying things that you're not forbidden to say, that you are, as the Jews say, you, uh, anyone, uh, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. You cannot make yourself a king in Rome. You will die. That's against the law, making yourself a king. You give your life for that. And that's really what happens in the garden as well. There's one king in the garden. It's God. And God says, you may eat of every tree except one. You cannot eat of that one tree. That's the law of the land. That's the law of God's kingdom in the garden. And so Adam and Eve choose rather than to submit to that king's law, they choose to break that king's law with their own law. They seek to challenge his kingship. It's an assault on his rule. The, the, the breaking of the commandment in Genesis 3 is an assault on the kingly rule of God and his law. That's what Jesus is accused of. And yet Jesus says, hey, you have no authority except it's given to you. He is over Pilate. He is over Caesar. He is over all. He is sustaining the heartbeat of the man who is judging him from a human judgment seat. It's not a problem for Jesus to break the earthly king's law, for he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But for you and I to break God's law, for you and I to assert ourselves against this, which is the law of the kingdom, the scripture, and say, well, the scripture may say this, but I want that. The scripture may say this, but I'm going to do that. We have, we have challenged his rule. We have challenged his law. We have challenged his sovereignty. And so Jesus is innocent, but he's accepting charges that are rightfully levied against us. The first Adam falls in these areas, making himself God, challenging the king's rule. The second Adam, Jesus comes to restore all that. He honors God. He obeys God. And yet he faces the charges that we ultimately face. Have you... Ever wondered why Jesus is silent? I mean, that's, I've read that in the past. Though. Why didn't he just say something? Why isn't he just slamming Pilate? You know, Pilate says, where are you from? But Jesus gives him no answer. And even when Jesus does answer, uh, he doesn't really challenge you. He doesn't just like, come out with arguments that would just blow Pilate away and you know, pierce him up against the wall. Why does he remain silent when, G- when Pilate challenges him? Well, the reason he remains silent is because he's accepting the charges. He's standing there silent, accepting your charges and accepting my charges. He's not resisting the charges. He's receiving the charges because you and I have made ourselves out to be God and you and I have challenged the king's rulership. This is why Isaiah 53 says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why isn't he saying anything to defend himself? Because he is the lamb of God and he is being led to slaughter. And he's being led to be slaughtered for our sins. So, The reason the Apostles' Creed says he suffered under Pontius Pilate is because he is suffering judgment for our charges. And he is being abused physically and otherwise to identify ultimately with us 
and our sufferings. And he is absorbing the judgment and the charges that were geared against us. I think for this passage to really have the takeaway or the take-home effect that it should for us, we need to realize, again, this is for, not only us, this is for me. This is for me. He's silent because the charges are true, not about him, but about me. He's silent because he is getting what I deserve. He's silent and not resisting the abuse that's heaped on him because he's taking that in my place and will sympathize with my sufferings, even when others sin against me. He's dying ultimately for me, sympathizing with our weaknesses. He is judged not on the merit of his sins, but he is judged for my sins, punished for my sins. And the result of that is not just like a deep sobriety where we walk out of here feeling really bad, like, did Good Friday just happen? You know, sometimes we can think, was well, this kind of feels like a Good Friday service, and next week's the crucifixion, and you can feel the same. But the, the point is that he does all of this so that we are right with God. The good news in this is we're clean. If you're a believer here today, you are clean before God. You are forgiven before God. You are welcome before God. You will never answer before the throne of grace for your rejection of God. You will never hear declared over you guilty, condemned, and ushered into eternal punishment. You will never have that day because Jesus accepts charges that were ours and Jesus dies in our place. That is the good news, that we are free, we are welcomed. We're not, we're not only before God just said we're forgiven, but God says we're declared righteous by Christ's life and what he did for us. We are welcomed before a throne of grace. We are welcomed before the God who has come into space and time as a human to identify with us, to die for us, to pay the price that we were to pay, to sympathize with us in our sufferings, in our temptations, in our weaknesses, yet never sinning dying for us, modeling for us how to respond when sinned against as well. He does all of this so that we are welcomed and so that we are hopeful with a certain hope. The world has no hope to offer. If someone is suffering apart from Christ, I mean, what hope do you really have to give them? I hope it works out for you. I mean, I don't know what you say. You just try to feel, you know, fill the need, I guess, with, with, uh, with some kind of comforts. Food, alcohol, drugs, sex, money, whatever. You just try to fill the void with something to comfort the suffering, but it's hopeless. But those who know Jesus have great hope, for he has paid the price for us. He has suffered for us. He will return for us, and he will usher in a day where it is all good. It is all glorious. It is all wonderful in his presence. Under the gracious, merciful, perfect rule of King Jesus, where there is no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain, no more anguish, no more fear, no more uncertainty, no more weakness, no more confusion, no more hidden sin, no more abuse, no more neglect, none of that, just with Christ forever. There's tremendous hope for those of us who know Jesus because of what he's done for us. All of this happens, this judgment happens for us. How great and merciful and gracious is our Savior to us today. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.